Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today that those words would be true in us. That, Father, we would seek Christ and cling to Him because our hope can be found nowhere else. That we would know and believe that He is the way to have eternal life with you. And so, Father, this morning, as, as we look to your word together, I pray, Father, that you would remove distractions from our minds and hearts. And, Father, that we would trust in the salvation that you have afforded us in Christ Jesus. And that we would rightly examine our hearts through your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8 begins with a repetition of an earlier miracle. There's some changes from the first to the second time, but you're going to immediately recognize it as familiar. But our focus today is primarily not on that specific particular miracle, but on kind of what happens after. This, this miracle in particular is, is, a, is a setup to illustrate different responses to Jesus. And as we walk through this passage together, we all should be examining our own hearts for hardness. Because what we're going to see today is that the only true difference between a heart that is hardened and a heart that isn't is belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only discernible difference between the two. And belief is proven by continuing on in following Christ. Belief is not a one-time thing. Oh, I believe and then I'm done. But as we saw when we looked at the parable of the sower and the soils, belief is evidenced by persistent belief. And so our, our message today, if you've got one of our uh, sermon listening guides out of the bulletin, is entitled, Beware a Hardened Heart. Beware a Hardened Heart. And we should all be wary of a hardened heart. So let's look together at Mark chapter 8, uh, beginning with verses 1 through 10, where we see bread for the dogs. Bread for the dogs. So let's read Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, 
how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he, re- he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a, sm- a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Back in Mark chapter 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000 plus people. And here in Mark chapter 8, we see a similar miracle. And if you remember what Scott preached a couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 7, you'll likely remember that Jesus and his disciples had moved into a Gentile region. So that's where they are when this takes place. The feeding of the 5,000 was a Jewish miracle. The feeding of the 4,000 is a Gentile miracle. A large crowd has gathered and they're following Jesus around and he's teaching them. And they've been with him for three days. And there comes a point in time where it's time to eat. And because they've been with him three days, their supplies are pretty much exhausted. And Jesus, who is moved by compassion for the people, wants to provide for them. He wants to take care of them. So he tells the disciples, hey, um, we got to feed these folks. And at first glance, it seems like the disciples have completely forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000. Because they say almost the exact same thing. Where do you expect us to find enough food to feed these people out here in this desolate place? And so when, we, when you read that, you go, man, these disciples, they just really forget, don't they? But notice something. In verse 1 of Mark chapter 8, it says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered. It is apparent that this is happening again. The disciples have not forgotten what has taken place at the feeding of the 5,000. There is a linkage in their minds. But here's the problem. The problem is that the disciples see these events not as necessarily evidence of what Jesus can do. They see them as a fixed point of reference. Jesus did that, that time, the end. Now, we should all recognize this is the natural state of fallen man. Rather than see the work of God as evidence of what God can do, We tend to see these things as a fixed point of reference. God did that, that time, the end. Think about the Exodus. One of the most maddening things about reading the book of Exodus as a Christian is you see the Israelites and you just want to grab them and shake them and go, what's wrong with you people? The Lord miraculously delivers them out of slavery from Egypt. Does, does so in such a way that their neighbors give them valuable things and say, here you go, folks. Here's all my gold and silver. Here, here's some nice stuff. 
Take it on your trip. And then he parts the Red Sea and they cross on dry land. And then Pharaoh's armies are crushed to death and drowned by the Red Sea when it crashes down upon them. And so Israel goes out into the wilderness. And what do they do? The Lord has brought us out here to die. We're all going to starve to death. Where's God? We're hungry. You just walked through the Red Sea on dry land. You just watched the most powerful military in the entire world get completely destroyed by God. And now because your tummy is rumbling, you're going to grumble against God? Because that's what's happening. God takes care of them through the wilderness. He causes manna to come from heaven to feed them. He guides them through the wilderness. And they get to the promised land and they go, those people are too big. We can't go in there. What? And then, even better, God, the one true God, who is doing all of these things for them, causes an entire mountain to catch on fire and shake. And they're all terrified. And Moses goes up the mountain to be with the Lord, to get the law. And then they all forget all about it and go, Moses has been gone a long time. We should make ourselves a new God. What is wrong with these people? But the reality is, is that we are the same way. How often do we lose hope in the midst of our circumstances, forgetting that our God did those things? The disciples do not, it's not that they've forgotten what Jesus did. It's that, well, he did it then. I don't know what he's going to do now. They have, they, they do not understand who Jesus is. It's not that they don't understand what he's capable of. It's that they don't understand who he is. In the same way that Israel didn't understand who God is. Because if they did, I guarantee you the same people who were so afraid of the Lord on the mountain would not have had the world's first Mardi Gras, made a golden calf, and thrown a party. It's a lack of understanding about who he is. It is so easy for us to look at what the Lord has done and wonder at it, but fail to connect the previous work of God to our present circumstances because in certain ways, our hearts are hard. And just like in Exodus 16, when the Lord caused manna to come from heaven, just like in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus fed more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, he is going to do the same thing for these Gentiles. Now, from here on, throughout the miracle, it's basically the same, but there's some little differences, right? He wants to know what they have. Well, we've got seven loaves instead of five, and we've got a few fish. And there's more than one blessing. But the, same, the, 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 the most important parts are the same. The miraculous nature is the same. Jesus asks the blessing, the food is multiplied, everyone eats and is satisfied, and they take up baskets worth of leftovers. It's the same basic format. 
Now, some scholars and theologians and, and commentators look into all of those little differences and they want to be like, well, it, this was like this because it was for Gentiles versus Jews. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't think it really matters. I think personally, I read the differences in this feeding versus the other feeding as Peter's way of saying, don't think I'm telling you the same story twice. These both really happened in different places with different circumstances. Make sure you understand this. What's the most striking about this, once you get through the, the recognition that there's a lot of similarities, what's most striking about this is the context of the miracle in light of Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, which Scott preached on a couple of weeks ago. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this woman, who's not a Jew, hears of this man who is immensely powerful and capable of doing incredible things, and she comes and she says, please heal my daughter. And Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus says, you are not a part of the people of God yet. And so my works and my miracles and my teachings are for them first. And she says something absolutely incredible. Yet, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus heals her daughter because of her faith. But notice the context here. She's asking for healing, and Jesus says, I'm worried about bread. And here we are, a little ways later, and they're out in the wilderness, and what do the people need? They need bread. And Jesus is taking the children's bread and throwing it to the dogs. Why? Because he has compassion on them. These are the dogs who are seeking the scraps, but Jesus is moved with the same compassion, performs the same miracle, has the same sort of abundance. This miracle shows us how the coming of Christ is opening the door to people from every tribe and tongue to be reconciled to God. There is not a difference between Jew and Gentile in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He fed them, he feeds us because we are his people. The feeding of the 5,000 is the miracle that gets all the press. It's the one that gets all the attention. But to me, I think the feeding of the 4,000 should get most of our attention. Because the feeding of the 4,000 is the one that says this is for us. Because as far as I am aware, every one of us in this room is a Gentile, not a Jew. And this miracle is the Lord saying, my compassion and my heart and my love are for you too. What an incredible, incredible thing. The plan was always, always 
for Gentiles to be grafted into the people of God. God established the nation of Israel to bring forth a Messiah, to have a people, to give a law, to show that we cannot follow the law, to bring forth a Messiah who will follow the law, and then he opens the door for every tribe and tongue to be reconciled to God. We, church, are Israel. That was always God's intention. That was always God's plan. We must be careful to not draw a line of distinction where the Lord does not draw one. This miracle, this duplication of the miracle, makes the next section all the more striking. Because what we're going to see next are two illustrations of spiritual blindness. So let's look together, verses 11 through 21, where we see spiritual blindness. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So Jesus and the disciples make their way back into Jewish territory. Uh, it's funny, this, this region that's mentioned in Mark Dalmanutha is not mentioned anywhere else. And no one really knows where that is. But it's in Jewish territory because when they get there, the Pharisees come and they're arguing with Jesus, as is their way. They've come to Jesus and they, they are confronting him and they are saying essentially, if you really are who you say you are, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Now, The irony of this request, given what has just happened, is absolutely staggering. Jesus has just come from doing one of the most incredible miracles, and now the Pharisees are going, hey, if you're really who you say you are, show us a sign. And Jesus responds and sighs. This is one of the few times in Scripture that we see Jesus moved in an emotional way where he has a reaction like this, and he sighs. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Now, the reason why Jesus says this is because he has been doing nothing but showing them signs. He has been performing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He is healing people. He is casting out demons. He is feeding five, more than 5,000 people. He's feeding 4,000 people. He is doing incredible things all throughout the region, so much so that his works are being told everywhere. 
There's blind people who see. There's lame people who can walk. There's deaf people who can hear. And the Pharisees go, you got to prove it, man. You gotta, if you want us to believe this, you got to prove it. What they're really saying is, is they are revealing their hearts to him and saying, we will never believe that you are who you say you are. We have so thoroughly convinced ourselves that you are a liar, a blasphemer, a heretic, whatever it may be. There is nothing you can do that is going to change our minds. Jesus alludes to this in a parable about Lazarus and the rich man, where the rich man dies and he goes to hell. And he is, he is calling out and saying, please, please just let me go back and let me just tell my brothers. Let me tell my brothers that this is true so that they, would, they, that they won't end up here with me. And he's told, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody raises from the dead. And obviously he was speaking of himself. But the reality is, is he's saying, for some people, their hearts are so hardened they will not believe no matter what evidence is presented to them. And do you know who those people are? Those people are everyone. Every single human being will not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God unless the Lord changes their heart. Yeah. It will not change. And that's what's happening here with the Pharisees. And so Jesus says, you're not getting a sign. Now notice, he doesn't stop performing miracles. He continues doing the things that he's going to do. But he says, you're not getting a sign. Because what they are asking for is something that doesn't exist. There is no miracle that will change their minds aside from the miracle of a new heart given to them by the Lord. And that's where they are. And so they leave. They get in the boat and they go back to the other side. So that's one illustration of spiritual blindness they are dead in their sins their hearts are dead and they cannot see jesus for who he is and no matter how many signs he performs how many miracles he does no matter how many teachings he gives them it will never change unless they have new hearts and then he gets in the boat and he goes with the disciples and what are the disciples focused on they don't have any bread they don't have any bread. And so it's not entirely clear if the disciples are already talking about this or if Jesus just knows what's in their heart or if he uses this analogy to kind of draw their, the condition of their heart out in conversation. But he tells them, hey, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He says something that intentionally draws their minds to bread. Now, Talking about leaven brings back memories of unleavened bread in the Passover. It also, for me, refreshes my mind of something Paul says in talking about church discipline, where he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you want your bread to be unleavened, you better not put any leaven in it, because a little bit of leaven is going to make it all leavened. And when they celebrated the Passover, the Lord went so far as to say, you better take all of it out of your house. Like, 
Don't put it in a container that ever had leaven in it. Don't put the leaven two cabinets over. Get it all out of your house so that there's no possible chance that you'll have contamination. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to beware this leaven because when it comes in, it's going to corrupt everything. And he gives them two kinds, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. This is the first time he's used Herod as a negative, a negative example. But what I, what I think he's doing here is he's telling them two sorts of things to avoid. First of all, you have the self-righteous religiosity of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so convinced of their own righteousness that the Son of God is literally talking to them and they don't see it because they are convinced that their own works will save them. And then you have Herod. And I would say Herod is a representation of self-righteous political ambition, of seeking to have this level of authority. You have two sets of people who are seeking authority in different ways, religious authority, political authority. And he's saying, my followers should be really leery of either one of those things. Watch out for your works, watch out for your ambitions. Because when those things get in, they infect everything. They corrupt everything. The disciples completely miss the point. Jesus is giving them a spiritual lesson, and they immediately start talking to one another about how they don't have any bread. Now, I would imagine that this is probably a little bit of an argument where they're going, well, whose job was it to bring bread? We just had seven baskets of leftovers. You didn't think to bring that? And I guarantee you there was at least one of them who was like, well, I'm not bringing that Gentile food. That's unclean. I'm not touching that. And so here they are. They got one loaf of bread between 13 men. And we're not talking about like a bunny loaf, okay? We're talking about like a little loaf of bread. And, and again, it's the same story as when they were in the wilderness. Well, who's going to feed us? We're hungry. Completely forgetting what Jesus just did. Completely forgetting it. They're just worried about, well, my belly's rumbling now. What are you going to do now? How are you going to help me now? And Jesus does not give them any bread, which I love. I love that he doesn't go, well, here's some bread. Let's talk about it. He says, why are you talking about bread? Why is this your focus right now? And he really lays into them pretty good. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's saying, guys, it has been in front of you all this time. Where are you? And the question he asks them is, are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? It's calling back to places in the Old Testament where the Lord talked about the hardness of Israel's heart. Psalm 90, 95 in particular talks about how they, the, the people of Israel hardened their hearts and that they did not enter the rest of God. They did not go into the promised land because they hardened their hearts. And he reminds them of his work. He says, hey, you remember when I did this? How many baskets of bread did we take up? 
about? You remember when I fed the 4,000? How many baskets of bread? Seven. Don't you get it, guys? Everything you need is right here in front of you. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 6 calls himself the bread of life. That comes after the feeding of the 5,000. The people are following him around going, we want more of this bread. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. And everybody freaks out because they're like, I don't want to eat this, dude. But he's telling them a truth that they need to hear. Brothers and sisters, listen. Even if you starve to death, you have all you need. Even if you are homeless, even if you are naked, even if you are blind, deaf, paralyzed, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have all you need. The disciples completely missed that. They are in the boat with the Son of God. And they're going, well, I'm hungry. Whose turn was it to bring dinner? They've completely missed the point. They are spiritually blind. They're spiritually blind. Just like the Pharisees. The only difference is that the disciples kept following Jesus. And the Pharisees didn't. It's the only difference. Peter got it wrong so many times. But Peter rightly said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't understand. We get it wrong all the time. But where are we going to go? There's nobody else who can help us but you. And so when we think about this concept of having a hard heart, we think about the parable of the sower and the soils and those who were, who were supposedly following Jesus and then abandoned him. When we think about it in our own lives where we forget about the ways that the Lord has provided and we feel so hopeless, what is it that showcases the difference between someone whose heart is hardened and someone whose heart is dead. What's the differentiation? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's the difference between the Pharisees and the disciples. That's the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not, is continued following of Jesus. As long as we are in this life, made of this flesh, we are not always going to understand. We are sometimes going to have hardened hearts. We are sometimes going to forget the goodness of the Lord in the midst of our present circumstances. We are going to feel hopeless. Those things will happen. But the differentiation is where we go, Lord, I need you to show me a sign so that I'm going to continue to believing in you. Or saying, where else will we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. That's the difference. The Pharisees sought signs. The disciples said, where else are we going to go? Which one of those are you? Are you looking for signs to continue to believe? Or are you saying, where else am I going to go? That's the question. That's the question. In Hebrews chapter 3, if you, if you want to turn there, if not, you can listen. In Hebrews chapter 3, the, the author uses this hardened heart analogy, starting in verse uh, 7. 
And he, and he, he plays it out for us to understand. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So there's the quote from Psalm 95. And he's saying, these people have seen my works for 40 years and they still do not believe. They have hardened their hearts because it's unbelief. And so he goes on, the author of Hebrews in verse 12, and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author of Hebrews wants us to see hard hearts are because of disobedience, because of lack of belief, because of a lack of faith. The Pharisees and the disciples in that way had the same problem. It just manifested differently. The Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And their response was to argue and test. The disciples, in certain moments, failed to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You see the link? See, the diff see how it works? But we must continue on. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ you have seen the works of the Lord. You have seen His works in yourself as you are sanctified. You have seen His works in other people as they are sanctified. And if our response to hard things is immediately to doubt and to question, that's sinfulness on our part. And we must fight 
against that sinfulness. Because continued lack of belief shows forth a hard heart. And those who have continued persistent lack of belief are not in Christ. And so you should beware a hardened heart because a hardened heart just might show that you don't know the Lord. And so this morning, I plead with you in the same way that the Lord pled with His people. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, but believe. Believe that you will enter His rest. No matter what happens to us in this life, persecution, toil, famine, strife, death, we go to be with the Lord. Just as our fighter verse this week tells us, he has gone to prepare a place for us to enter into his rest. We just believe. So brothers and sisters, believe on the goodness and the majesty of Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we are broken sinners in desperate need of Christ. Every moment of every day, we need Him. Father, I pray that You would help us today to root out unbelief in our hearts. To make war against sin in us. Help us, Father, to not have hard hearts, but to have soft hearts, to see your work and your goodness and your truth. That in all things, Christ would be preeminent in us. Father, use this time as we take the Lord's Supper together to work in the hearts of your people. In Christ's name, amen.